My guest this week is Alex Bridgman. He is the host of a podcast and blog, Think Like an Owner, about investing in private companies and permanent capital. His day job is a client service associate at Pilot Wealth in Portland, Oregon. As my wife says, he's one of my Twitter friends. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. It's a little different than some of the other ones. Go ahead and share with a friend. Enjoy. All right, Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right, let's jump right on in. So what has got you excited work-wise these days? Well, for for starters at Pilot, the I think the biggest thing is just that we're shifting our focus more towards uh, business owners. So previously, we've worked with you know, a combination of entrepreneurs or, you know, just young savers and a few business owners here and there. To me, the business owners are the most fun because their problems are, you know, not just personal, but there's, you know, another entity you have to work with and uh, figure out. So learning how to, you know, find business owners and get them into your your circle and learn about them is going to be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that part. How about you? Yes. Doing the podcast, I redid the the website, so that's got me excited. It sucks a little less than it first did, so glad to redo that. Got some good guests like yourself. Hopefully get Sam Parr over at The Hustle on here in a few weeks. And so that's got me excited. To kick it back to you quickly, so you're doing wealth management. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what exactly you do day to day? Yeah, so as an associate, I work on... Um, investment research, so looking at different holdings of ours. Um, I do the, the trading for those primarily, and then just client service side stuff as well. So planning out different retirement options for individuals, or looking at a business to figure out, you know, what can we do, what can we do better here, or recommend to this client, or there's a business owner that we're working with who is selling their company. We need to figure out, you know, should they reinvest in the vehicle that's acquiring them? Should we? you know, look at different, you know, structures for their, you know, trust afterwards and that sort of thing. So that part is is pretty exciting. And then with the shift to business owner focus, a lot of my work now is trying to figure out how to write and uh, use like newsletters and um, more blog articles just on the pilot wealth management side. Um, I've obviously done a lot of that on the the podcast side, but so getting to do it on the career side in the day-to-day work is going to be, I think that'll be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that too. Yeah, that's very exciting. So you're obviously super interested in investing in private companies. Where did that interest come from and what, what has that experience been like so far? I think the the biggest draw for me was early in, I was always interested in investing in high school, particularly. In middle school, I just liked to read the like the business section of the newspaper. But in high school, coming across uh, Warren Buffett and the snowball and uh, the intelligent investor, and um, I actually created a, a small investment club in high school. I had us each read, every week we would read one chapter of the intelligent investor, then come back and chat about it. And we also managed like fake like Google finance, you know, portfolios. It turns out I wasn't a very good manager of high school students. So it wasn't actually super successful, but it was really fun to learn about that model and the idea of always, of buying a small or not small, but buying a portfolio of companies that you could take the you know collective cash flows and then use to, those to go buy other companies. 
that was always interesting to me. Um, but Berkshire was the only model I had to go off of. Um, and so getting into college and still having that interest and focus, I was kind of looking around to see if there were people doing this on a smaller scale. And I came across a few people, but I didn't get very far. The biggest breakthrough was listening to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's interviews with Brent Bishore and Chenmark and the Harvard professors and uh, Will Thorndike and hearing, you know, this these terms getting thrown around like search funds and micro private equity and just private equity in general. And then, you know, you kind of realize like, oh, okay, here's the key word. You know, if you want to learn about something, it's nice to be able to know what the lingo is so you can Google it and find all the right sources. And so now that I had the the terms that everyone was using, it was easy to go find other people doing that. And the learning just became a lot faster. So kind of leading into what the the podcast is about, the goal of the podcast has always been to, you know, the same as before, just to learn as much as possible. Um, but the podcast just gives you, you know, something that is publicly available so that interested people who are interested in the same stuff and are curious and like-minded can find your podcast and your, your stuff and your writings and reach out to you. And so that was a pretty cool way I thought to connect with people. And, you know, there's, when I thought about it, I could either, you know, reach out to people directly, you know, over LinkedIn or email. I've always been a believer in building relationships and networking. And so that was a pretty comfortable tool set for me, but, you know, having something available that people could reach out and now you have inbound people coming to find you was really, really powerful. And so that's been really fun as a way to connect with these people and, um, it's an inherently private space as well. You know, it's in the name, you know, small private equity, which I guess private equity doesn't describe the whole universe, but it's private businesses. Um, and so I figured the best way to learn about it was to go talk to these people and learn how they operate and their strategies and thoughts. And podcast has been really, really useful and helpful for that. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're obviously both interested in the topic. So you run across Patrick and Brent. I first heard of Brent a couple months ago as well. Uh, I mean, you're in Portland, correct? Yep, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, yeah, very nice. So very similar to to Fort Worth, probably in size and things like that. I mean, are you seeing a bunch of companies or even any companies like this pop up in your area yet? Like, I mean, there's private equity here, especially in Dallas, but we still haven't really seen many of these that at least I've heard of. Yeah, not not terribly many. Um, Portland is still a relatively small market for finance and you know those types of acquirers. There's a substantially larger group of them in Seattle. Here in Portland, we have you know Endeavor Capital, which is I think the largest private equity buyer in the city. There's probably a handful of other smaller ones, and there's one or two search funds also in town, but that's that's pretty much it. Um, but if you go up to Seattle, you you get you know folks like Traction Capital, who's a sponsor of my podcast, they're up there, and you know a handful of others, and just the community in Seattle is much larger. So, um, which is always amazing to me, like the you know the Portland, like relative to most, like it's the largest city in Oregon. It's the large, it's larger than any city in you know Idaho or Montana, and you know, even still, it's not as large as some of these other cities, and it doesn't have the same infrastructure uh, for financial buyers. So that that's always been interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So you're when did you graduate college? A couple of years ago, right? 
uh, last May. So pretty recently. Yeah. Very nice. You and Johnny as well. So you guys are the same age. Uh, you're very young. How do you even get started, I guess? Uh, what's your experience like on that front, given the the nature of the business, just in general around uh, investing in private companies? Have you been given any good advice on that whole industry, I guess? Well, I guess you could argue that I'm kind of at the at the start of that process, just in the learning phase, um, which I everyone goes through and it, it takes, you know, a, a certain amount of time for each person. Some are faster than others. Um, some, you know, come in with previous work experience. So they've worked in banking or private equity, or they've operated companies or started them. And so they already have like a pretty solid base of knowledge to go off of. And it's just a matter of applying that to smaller private companies. But for folks like me who don't have that background, it's more about, you know, we just need to, you know, just find a few people who are willing to chat with you and find a few interesting resources and podcast interviews to get you started so that you have something to build off of with future conversations. But with the people I've talked to who are, you know, kind of thinking over this, this path and are talking about, you know, going out on their own and leaving whatever their current job is or their current fund to go start their own, there's a lot of nervousness about, you know, leaving this, you know, generally well-paying job that they've enjoyed for a while, but they they still have that entrepreneurial itch to go out and do it themselves. And it's weird to get those calls because those people or get people like that who are interested in chatting about it because I I know far less than they do about it. So there's something fun about chatting with them, but they are going over those same questions, you know, what is this space? And they learn them faster. But yeah, so talking to people around them, oftentimes there's people nearby who've gone through the same experience so they can go talk to them about it. But it seems like the biggest questions people have are, you know, how do I, you know, leave my job but still pay for my expenses? Most people have um, substantial savings, so they can live off of that at least for a little while. Some will start a search fund of sorts and take a, a traditional, you know, salary for the, you know, during the time they search until they acquire a company. Others will, you know, eat beans and rice during the time and um, go off of, you know, as much smaller amount of savings. Um, but then building that that sourcing mechanism, finding deals, working with brokers and owners to try to find a company, and then learning how to close and um, put a deal together. Um, those are all the the main like tools. And usually, once they get to that point, they're they've kind of figured out a little bit about what they're doing and enough that they can go on their own, and they don't need quite as much advising. Of course, the advising just shifts. So instead of you know, how do I source and close a deal? It's, you know, how do I grow my business that I now own? And, you know, how do I find and retain key employees and all that sort of stuff too? Yeah, a totally different set of challenges. One thing I've been curious about is, I don't know if you've gotten any answers on this, is how much it takes to invest in a private company, even if you don't buy complete ownership. Are people even looking for partial investments from uh, these search funds and different things like that and like how much money it actually takes. Uh, have you gotten any insight on that? Um, I think it's all about how you um, how you structure it. So some people will, I've, I've had some people say you don't need any money. Like you can do it all through, you know, borrowing, you know, money from a bank or a seller's note or, you know, getting money from investors and just building up sweat equity of sorts. 
there's that option. I'm not sure if that's the best way, but most searchers are looking for a company that's, you know, at least a million dollars in earnings. And if you can buy it at four times, that's $4 million. So you can maybe get a seller's note for maybe one of those million and some debt for the, for two of the million. So you're stuck with a million. You can raise that from investors or however you structure that with investors, there's you know a million ways to do that. But you don't have to be already a millionaire to invest in these companies. You can do it with much smaller amounts of capital. I think just as you work down the amount of equity that you have or are able to put in, you just have to get more creative with how you structure it with your investors and other people. But it's definitely doable at, at most um, sizes of savings, I would say. Yeah, that that makes total sense. To jump back a little bit, so you've been in wealth management for the past year or so. Has that taught you much about investing or growing in these private companies? I mean, have, you've obviously met with many business owners. I mean, has that have you learned very much from that experience? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, I think growing up and before before getting to the point where I'm working with business owners who are clients or perhaps not clients. And I always kind of assumed that people treated money and business, you know, pretty rationally, like it's, it's numbers. You can put it on an Excel sheet and there's a pretty objective answer for the most part. But I think the more owners I've chatted with, you know, there's, there's so much more of an emotional component to it, to how somebody runs their business and how they make decisions, both with their you know own personal capital, but with the business as well. So it's interesting to see some business owners do things a certain way because that's just tradition. That's what they've always done. Not that it's like they choose not to do a different way. They just are comfortable with one way of doing things. And then some others that us at Pilot, you know, being the outsiders can look at a business and say like, well, this seems like an obvious switch that you could do or um, change you could make at the business. And either like they've, <laughs> they've usually thought of it, but it's, it's just interesting to see how much more emotion plays into it. Um, I think that's just been the biggest growth for me. Um, looking at business owners um, over the last year at Pilot is just having greater appreciation for the emotional side of money and how, how much more emotional things are than I previously thought. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I mean, from a couple of years of listening to business podcasts that seems to be in line uh, with what just about everybody from Brent or any of them are saying on the subject. So you started a podcast back in 2018, if my memory serves me, and you've been doing it on a monthly basis. What has that experience been like? Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I it's it was more work initially than I thought. Like the first episode, I think, took me almost a month to get out because I didn't know how to, you know, do audio editing. I didn't know anything about recording or all this other stuff. But the very first episode I did was with Trish Higgins from Chenmark Capital, and they're in they're in Portland, Maine. And I was on a school trip to New York during that time, or during the first episode, like the time where we recorded it, which was in October 2018. And I remember just cold calling their office in Portland. And I remember Palmer picked up and I I asked him like if if Trish or James or him were gonna be in in New York or Boston during the time and I could go and take a flight or a train up. And 
uh, Palmer said that Trish was going to be in Boston on business. And so I took a, a train from New York up to Boston and met her. And we we literally had the interview in a, a shopping mall, like this quiet area of a shopping mall. We just sat at a table. And before that, I went over to, there was a there was a bank that had an office in the mall. And I went in and just asked if they would be willing to let us like use a quiet, you know, empty cubicle or meeting room there. And they said no, because there was like sensitive bank information. But I thought it was worth a shot. Um, so we just recorded in the in the mall at a table. And so if you listen to the episode, you can hear like background noise from, you know, kids walking by or families or chairs scooting back. And there was lots of fun though. Trish was really, really kind and generous with her time. But the the experience of the podcast, I still remember like the excitement of seeing it grow and knowing that like seeing that people were actually listening to it. Like Next, even today, I feel like even if 10 people listen to it, like that's a super exciting day. I mean, I always think of it as like being in a room uh, with 10 other people listening to your your chat. Like if that happened in your life, that would be amazing. Like, so to me, it's the same thing with the podcast. That's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how I thought of it. So how did you go about getting a sponsor? I'm, I've interviewed a couple of people that have shows and I don't think any of them really have or had sponsors, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yeah, so uh, Traction Capital, who's the the sponsor, um, they are in Tacoma, and I recorded them, I believe, on my, I think it was my third podcast episode. I recorded with them, and I I drove up to, to Tacoma to record with them, and it was a great episode, and I just stayed in touch with them. And then literally as I was boarding my flight with my fiance Michelle to go to uh, Japan, after I graduated, they, he texted, Justin Turner texted me asking if I was interested in a sponsor. And I had to give a quick reply before literally getting on the plane. But I think he was really interested in hearing about, you know, some way that they could support the show. And for context, the show costs about a hundred bucks an episode. And the vast majority of that is just the transcription of the episode. So it's probably 70% transcription and the other 30 is a mixture of the hosting fees to Libsyn and, you know, if you depreciate or amortize my um, audio equipment, it's like 15 bucks an episode or something like that. And a hundred bucks a month is, you know, for a just graduated student, like that's some very material amount of money. <laughs> so, and it probably will be for a little while. Um, but we both talked about the sponsorship as more of him supporting the show, not necessarily a market rate sponsorship because the the podcast didn't have many listeners at the time, but maybe a few hundred a month. So like there's no way we would it would make sense to do a, a market rate, like whatever the it's yeah, like ten dollars like per thousand downloads. Yeah, it it just wasn't gonna work that way. So we both agreed that it was more about supporting the show. And of course he liked the show and he, he likes the project and wants to help in some way. And so that was a great way to do it that took care of expenses. But I think what's so interesting about that relationship in particular is that both he and Peter reached out to me over Twitter. And I've always found that the best conversations I've had around the subject have always been from people that reached out to me, not the other way around, simply because that, you know, people who are reaching out are ones who have already pre-selected to, you know, the show or the project and they're familiar with it and they 
they like it enough to reach out and want to talk about it. So the fact that 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 a sponsorship came from Traction makes a lot of sense in that regard because they've they already liked it when they reached out. And so, yeah, and you had them on the show. Uh, I'm curious, how many people have you gotten from Twitter reaching out to you? I mean, a small handful. Um, it, it is funny how the how many guests I'd have to run the numbers and just look at it a little more. But there's a lot of guests I've had who've reached out to me and not the other way around. And that's been, I think the coolest part about the podcast is you can build these relationships with like-minded people who are, you know, they self-select for being interested and kind and generous with their time. And most of the people know that I'm, you know, only 23 and I just graduated. So I think they see like a young person that's, you know, excited about a topic that they are also excited about. And it's, it creates a really fun conversation and relationship. That's, that's been really, really fun to experience. Yeah. That's impressive that people are reaching out to you to come on the show. I've gotten a few as well, but they, they can be some pretty random ones. So we won't go into that. So can you share kind of what the goal of the show and the website is over the next year or two? Sure. Yeah. The The goal up to this point and going forward is still to learn as much as possible, um, as quickly as possible. And so um, in doing that through building relationships, um, that's to me been the most productive way to learn. It still blows my mind that people even listen to the show or reach out. And so that to build relationships that way is really, really humbling and exciting. Um, so to continuing to do that. And one thing I would really like to do this year is organize some sort of happy hour or meet up with people who are interested in this subject. And, you know, not just around the Pacific Northwest area, but if they're coming in from out of town and they'll be here during a, a week in April or something like that, um, trying to organize some sort of meet up to actually meet and continue building connections with folks who are interested in the in the project. Um, that's by far my biggest goal. I've tried to organize a small community around the podcast, like a literal forum online. Um, I think it's been it's been okay, but I'm not I'm not necessarily the best manager of an online community. Yeah, how's that going? That would be pretty tough. I mean, obviously you probably saw Brent's tweets a couple of weeks ago around that, but I've never tried to take it that um, to where you're going. It's been challenging. I can still post and, you know, lots of people share input. So that's been pretty exciting, but I'm still trying to figure out what's the, what's the best way to keep building relationships with these folks and learning from them and building friendships. Um, not just with, with me to them, but with each other. Cause a lot of the times when I would chat with somebody and ask, like, do you know anyone else like you doing what you do? And a lot of the times they didn't and they weren't familiar with other people. So it's kind of cool to be able to introduce you know, these like-minded folks to each other um, and see that relationship build. So that's been really, really rewarding and really cool. Um, and I want to continue to figure out ways to do that. And I think the in-person meetups would be a really, really great way to keep building those relationships. And um, I just want to figure out how best to organize that and, you know, where, where to have it, you know, what day of the week, that sort of thing. So, um, that'll be my ongoing mission and challenge in 2020. Yeah. Good luck with that. I've hosted two little happy hours, but I mean, there were five, 10 people there. So a much smaller scale who should be subscribing and reaching out to you. I guess this can be your time to pitch what you're doing 
and uh, let people know that might have never heard of it here in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the people who are I'm most interested in in chatting with and are those in the space. They're investors buying these small private companies, or they're operators who have a current company and they're thinking about acquiring another one in a similar style. But I don't know. It's it's always fun to also just chat with like young folks like myself who are, you know, thinking about the space and want to learn more and really just I think the the best definition is probably just people who are curious and want to learn about the space. Um, I'd love to chat with those people and continue to meet them and have them on the show. And those conversations are always the most fun when you can chat with someone who has like this curiosity that just it never stops. Like if, if there's something that they're interested in, they learn about it, you know, up till two 30 in the morning about stuff and they're, they're still reading and listening and, you know, sending you ideas and notes. Like those are the most fun people to, to chat with to me. So if that rings a bell to you, then yeah, come reach out. It'd be fun to chat. Absolutely. That's a solid answer. We can wrap up here with this question. Have you seen any big trends in private investing over the next few years? I guess, what what are you seeing? I mean, there's a ton of articles about all the baby boomers retiring and all of their businesses and passing that, that wealth to our generation and things like that. Uh, but I'd be interested, given your wealth management background and what you're doing with the blog. Sure. Yeah. In terms of the of older folks retiring and trying to pass down their businesses, um, it seems like a lot of older business owners are just continuing to run their businesses into their, you know, sometimes into their seventies, um, and just sort of delaying retirement. Part of me wonders if, you know, they're with the economy doing well, if their business has just done well, and so they just would rather not sell something that's you know making them a lot of money. And they just want to wait until doing that. And I think obviously a large part of it is also that a lot of these older business owners can't find a um, an heir or someone to take over the business. Um, we were chatting with a business owner who uh, wants to retire in the next 10 years, but neither one of his children are interested in in running it. So he's, he's kind of thinking about what, what his next steps are. In terms of just individuals starting their own investment firms to go buy these companies. The search fund model is more popular than ever. And there's there's now a lot more people who are coming into search funds who don't have an MBA background or never went in through the banking private equity path and are coming from, you know, perhaps totally under other industries, like not even finance related. Um, and so it's really interesting to see such a like a really diverse group of people wanting to get into search funds and buying private companies and that's been a really fun trend to watch and i i wonder if just the space is becoming more popular when you have you know you have platforms like search funder who are like a big community for search funds and um, there's more search fund reports and surveys of business owners are starting to acknowledge search funds more as a legitimate buyer of these companies uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see how search funds continue to evolve in, in 2020 and who is generally leading search funds and how that profile changes over time. Yeah, that will be very interesting. What do you think will happen during the next recession? Do you think they'll become even more popular or if it'll kind of fade away? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Some, I, 
I go back and forth. Part of me thinks that it can actually become more popular because there could be more business owners that have, um, you know, events in their life that, you know, make them want to sell or force them to sell. It's an unfortunate reality that a lot of businesses are sold after a tragic event. There's a death in the family or a divorce or a bankruptcy. And it'd be interesting to see if you see more businesses sell because of those reasons. Obviously, that's not the best environment you want to sell into, but I think you could see more people selling in a recession. But I I do wonder how the how the buyer side of things would change. Part of me thinks that there's going to be enough contrarian investors who have or high net worth individuals who see a recession and see an opportunity to invest in searchers and perhaps searchers are offering better terms to raise money because they're afraid of not being able to close if they find a deal. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's it's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm not going to predict a recession this year or next year or anytime, but um, if one happens, it'll be I'm curious to see how the dynamic works. Yeah, that will be interesting and people can stay tuned to Think Like an Owner for more information on that. Alex, I appreciate you coming on. This was fun. Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee. If you enjoyed the show and want to know more, check us out at hcwithmattmatt.com. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.